Denise, thank you so much for that on this Palm Sunday to long to find sweet rest in the arms of the Lord Jesus. That is a tremendous reminder for all of us. If you have your Bibles, if you would please turn over to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. Matthew chapter 21. Interrupting our series on the book of the Revelation, I'm so grateful for Pastor Rod's labors over these last uh, three weeks while we were in, uh, on the trip and in, in Israel. And uh, we will get back to that after Easter. Don't forget this coming Friday evening, we do have a good Friday service. That's at 6 o'clock, and we plan to celebrate the Lord's table together on uh, Friday evening. And then next Sunday, of course, is Resurrection Sunday. So we're longing and looking forward to that. The passage that we read just a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 21 really highlights that question. The question that all the people were asking, and they all came together. And look down in verse 10 again of Matthew chapter 21. And notice it says, And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. Now that word moved in the original language has the idea of just a startling, almost cataclysmic, like, what? What, what is going on here? And it's not, it's not merely lightly stirred. They were moved. And here's what they were saying. They were saying, who is this? Dear friends, I would point out this morning that for every one of us, this is one of the most essential questions that every one of us has to answer. Who is this? And you see in verse 11 that they, <clears throat> they didn't really get the right answer. In verse 11 it says, the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Well, with that confusion in mind, shall you and I pause together to pray to ask the Lord to help us avoid making the same mistake. Let's pray together. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for the light that comes from your word. Your words are glorious to us. I praise you that Jesus said, the words that I give unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And how I pray this morning that you would stir us and illuminate our understanding, give us light in our minds and hearts. Even though we have all of the scripture here before us, it would be so easy for any one of us to be blind to some aspect of the character of our wonderful Lord. Thank you for this Palm Sunday and the opportunity to celebrate what Jesus Christ did for all of us. Father, I pray this day that you would give us light and understanding and wisdom, and may the God of peace fill us with all joy and peace in believing that we may abound in hope. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a sense in which the entire gospel of Matthew, and for that matter, all the gospels, are designed to answer the question that is presented to us in verse 10 in today's text. And that question again is, who is this? As you and I, if we would take our Bibles, and you may wish to do this this morning, I'm going to go back to chapter 1 and just start working my way forward to see what is it that Matthew has revealed or unveiled about Jesus Christ. Beginning with chapter 1, we see the answers that begin to emerge. 
by his ancestry as the son of David and those angelic announcements, we are introduced to Jesus. He is the one, according to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. So here a while back we talked about this text and the importance of being one of his people. We find the wise men. We celebrate this at Christmas time. Wise men find this king of the Jews, and a wicked king, Herod by name, tries to destroy him. God's messenger, that's John the Baptist, God's messenger, the forerunner, announced his entrance into the ministry, and God the Father and the Holy Spirit confirmed it, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You know that beginning with Matthew chapter 4, the devil tested him and his disciples followed him. His sermons were thought-provoking, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. His miracles were powerful. Jesus quieted the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and then he quieted the demonic storm in the life of the Gadarene on his most recent trip. We were able to go to the place called Kersey. They have labored for some years to find tombs, and they finally found them. Three years ago, we found out on this trip. And we'll talk about this more this evening as we come together to talk a little bit about what we learned. The Lord Jesus forgave sins, and he fought cynics. He raised the dead and healed the blind, and all the while, he preached his message and demonstrated his power with his miracles. He commissioned his disciples to preach, and he comforted the doubters with prophecy. But all the while, Jesus warned those who refused to repent and offered rest to the souls of the humble who did repent. Our Lord used the scriptures to confront error and used parables to enlist the attention of the curious. He fed the multitudes even as he fed the faith of his men. Jesus answered those critics who despised him and showed his disciples that he is indeed the true Christ. Beginning in Matthew chapter 16 at Caesarea Philippi, a place that we visited on this recent trip. The Lord Jesus taught the terms of true discipleship and was transfigured to show his men his glory. He taught his followers to become like children and he challenged them to learn how to forgive and at every turn, Jesus constantly used the scriptures to answer those who opposed him and give light to those who questioned him. Even as he answered his critics, Jesus prepared his disciples for his own crucifixion. But blind men, and this comes out in the chapter right before the one we're looking at in chapter 20, blind men could see what his own disciples could not. Now, this summary of the first 20 chapters of Matthew leads us up to what we find here in Matthew chapter 21. And through it all, here's what we learn. We learn that God, in his providence, has given us exactly what we need to identify and to exalt, that is, to worship our precious Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 1 there, when it says, they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, here's what we know. This is a hazy picture of what it would look like to go up from Jericho, ascending 3,000 feet over 17 miles to go up to Jerusalem. You can actually, if you saw this picture a little up close, you could actually see that you could see Jerusalem in the distance. 
And this would have been part of the normal ascent of the way, as we talked about the Psalms of Ascent in the recent Sunday School series, this is the way that they would have gone up. And the Bible tells us here that they went up to a place on the Mount of Olives. We had the opportunity to not only photograph the Mount of Olives several times, but be uh, on the Mount of Olives for an extended time. And it tells us about a little village called Bethphage, B-E-T-H-P-A-G-E. It means house of figs. There's a little dispute about exactly where that is today, but it's like it's, we know it's very close to Bethany where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. We find in the text, and when they drew near unto Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage under the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples saying unto them. Now, we know as we look at what we have there today, we know that you have Church of All Nations. This is down in the Kidron Valley or just above the Kidron Valley. And you have uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. If I were to picture it this way this morning, I would put it like this. If you thought about the front of the pulpit as the Golden Gate, or it's often called the Eastern Gate of Jerusalem, you go down into the valley called the Valley of Kidron or the Valley of Jehoshaphat, it's sometimes called. And you begin to go a rising up, and the first thing you come to is the Garden of Gethsemane. You're looking at it there. If you look down in the courtyard of that, that church to the left, you can actually see the olive trees. We had the opportunity to go there and to go to an area over to the left of there to a very quiet uh, park that, had, that was full of olive trees for a time of devotions. If you were then to go up on the Mount of Olives, just bear in mind that you are actually facing the Dead Sea off in the distance. You go up on the Mount of Olives and over the top, you come to Bethany and Bethphage. That's what he's talking about here. And when he came to this area, this place called Bethphage, he actually sent his disciples over to uh, get a donkey. Now, here's what's really unusual about this passage. Jesus here doesn't send his disciples to ask permission. If you read this, and we put it in Glimpses of Calvary the last few days, when you read this, didn't it strike you as just the least bit presumptuous? I mean, just almost a little bit on being rude that Jesus just goes and gets the donkey or sends his disciples to go. He's not asking for permission because he says, and by the way, if anybody says anything to you, then here is what you can say. That is a really unusual passage, and yet, here's what we find. We find that this is another way that the Lord is reintroducing himself to the people of Jerusalem. It's, an also, it's also important for us to know he's reintroducing the Lord Jesus to all of us. You and I may have the idea today and say, I know Jesus. Hey, I, I, I hear about Jesus. I can tell you a lot about Jesus. But it's interesting that, that even for the most mature believer, what the Lord is doing is he is constantly reintroducing himself. And though you may have read the Gospel of Matthew many, many times, and you may have read your entire Bible many, many times, still isn't it fascinating that when you open it again and begin to read again, you see things that you had never seen before. A lot of times these are based on your personal experiences and your personal relationships. And perhaps I know that many of you here in this room have actually been to the land of Israel. And when you read these words, all of a sudden, I mean, it just comes alive in full embodiment. 
That in itself is fascinating. There are more geographical references to the land of Israel in the first 20 chapters of Genesis than there are in the entire Koran and the entire Book of Mormon. You see, what our Lord has done in his highest and greatest glory, he has given us the reality that we live in. Think about it this way. God never does second best. He never does. He never does second best. He always does his first best for his highest and greatest glory. And here's what that means. It means that he chose places like the Mount of Olives and Bethphage and Bethany. And he chose a donkey and a prophecy about a donkey. He did all that to show us his highest and greatest glory. So it would do well for all of us to pay very, very close attention to the kind of details that he brings out. If we really do long to know him, then these are not merely eh, mediocre stories that are just sort of out there and you can find these in you know, all kinds of religious books. That's just not true. What our God has done is he has unrolled or unveiled this wonderful, glorious revelation for every one of us to grasp and embrace by faith. And here we come to a passage where they just seem like they're doing something weird. Why, why would they go and just get the donkey without asking the owner's permission? And I think the very best answer to that is this, that Jesus knew that the owner of that donkey was one of his followers. He knew that the owner of that donkey full well understood what he had taught about discipleship. You can see this in Matthew chapter 16. You can see it in Mark that he repeatedly said, if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Think about what that means just for a moment. One of the things it means is that you deny the ordinary use of your possession, even of your money. That, that you deny yourself and you take up your cross and follow him. That's what Jesus knew about the owner of that donkey. How he knew that, we're not privy, we're not given to understand, but that he knew that, that that donkey owner would not think it was rude and that it was not presumptuous. And you can see it in the words that he says, and by the way, if anybody says to you, hey, 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 what are you, what are, what are you doing with the donkey? All you have to say is, the Lord has need of him. Now, I'd like to ask you the question on this very point as you think about what we're learning here, that God is using his servants, in this case, owner of the donkey and his own disciples. God uses his servants, his servants and what they possess to identify and exalt the Lord Jesus. Can you just imagine the thrill in the heart of that owner of this donkey if he became aware that someone embraced the Messiah, who embraced Jesus Christ by faith because of what happened. You say, well, wait, wait, wait. What's the significance of his riding on a donkey? We're going to get to that on the very next point. But on this point, let me just pause for a moment to ask, would you be willing to use your possessions, your means, your money, whatever it is, would you be willing to use it in the Lord's service in order that others would glorify God yet the more? 
this man, this donkey owner, is uh, quite a marvelous example to us. By the way, this fits with exactly what Paul said about the Macedonians over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. When he said this they did, they, had, they were giving gifts to a project. He said this they did, not as we hoped, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves unto the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Hey, there's the right formula. Somewhere along the line, that donkey owner had given himself to the Lord. Well, when you give yourself to the Lord, you give the Lord all of your other possessions as well. And so this is exactly what he had done. While we were on this trip, we were reminded about the woman that we read about in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13. Remember when Jesus was sitting at a meal, and this woman took an alabaster box, that was pretty expensive, and this very precious ointment, that would have been aromatic ointment. I mean, when she did what she did, it would have filled the house with this fragrance and with this aroma. It's extremely expensive stuff. And what did she do? She anointed the head of Jesus Christ even as he was sitting at the meal. And some of the disciples, especially Judas, they were indignant. What on earth are you doing? I mean, that's expensive stuff. At the very least, you could go and, you know, sell it and and give to the poor. And Jesus Christ said this about that woman. He said, don't you understand? She is truly exalting me. And by the way, Jesus said, and wherever this gospel is preached, it will be for a memorial to her, to what she has done. The very same thing can be said about the man who lent the donkey to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, the very same thing can be said for all of us. What do we learn? You can see it in your manuscript over in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. The Lord is not unrighteous to forget our works and our labors of love. Isn't that comforting today? If you look back on your life and you think about the ways that you have sacrificed and the ways that you have given to the Lord, and many of you here today could say, glory to God, I can remember times When I gave myself as a living sacrifice to the Lord and I gave him my possessions to use, and here's what the scripture says, God is not unrighteous to forget your works and your labors of love. That is a tremendous encouragement to us that we are actually laying up treasure in heaven. So when you think about that point about the donkey, don't miss this point. (laughs) There's going to be times when God's servants seem to be presumptuous. There's going to be times when, if you're not really careful, they seem like they're rude. Now, Now, why would that be? Well, here they are, they're on the way to serving the Lord, and they're trying to serve the Lord with everything in their power, and, and they have need of something and say to you, hey, by the way, could we use your, and you, you figure, your, your food, your, your car, your house, your something for this uh, youth activity, or something for this special thing that we do, your time. You know, you could very easily think, well, you presumptuous people. I mean, that, that's just down like rude. That, that's my time. And here's what happens. When we truly become followers of Jesus Christ, we realize it's not really my time and my possessions anymore. It's the Lord's time, and it's the Lord's possession, and it can be used for his great glory. 
Well, we have to ask the question, so what's the significance of this whole thing with, with the donkey? Why, why is he talking about this? Look down at verse 4 of Matthew chapter 21, and there that one phrase at the beginning is Matthew's commentary that helps us to understand all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Okay, which prophet and why is this so significant that Jesus Christ is riding a donkey, a, a young donkey apparently accompanied by its mother? Uh, anybody who knows anything about donkeys knows that the, if you had to name one characteristic of a donkey, what's the very first one that would come to your mind? I'll just put you to the test here. What's the first characteristic of a donkey that comes to your mind? He is stubborn. Well, almost everybody said it at once, right? And yet here is Jesus Christ riding this donkey, which by all indications uh, in nature and characteristics should be resisting him continually. But remember, this is the one who stilled the storms on the Sea of Galilee. This is the one who stilled the demonic storm in the life of the Gadarene. This is the one who healed the lame and the blind, and he is demonstrating here that he has power over all creation. Why? Remember, he's the creator. He's the one that created donkeys in the first place. And what is he doing for us here? He is opening our eyes this morning to the fact that all these things were done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Well, look, there's a whole discussion there that we could spend an extended time on, but let me just put it to you this way. It's not in your manuscript. But if you were to go back and read Isaiah chapters 42 through 46, here's what you would find over and over again. The Lord basically lays down the gauntlet. The Lord says, okay, if you want to know whether or not I am telling you the truth, here's how you can find out. Isaiah 42 through 46, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make very specific predictions. We call them prophecies. I'm going to give you these specific prophecies, these specific predictions, and then sometimes in a sudden and surprising manner, I'm going to bring those prophecies about. The Lord says, that's how you will know it is me. In fact, in that very same context, what he does is he actually taunts the false gods and said, they can't do this, but I can do this. So when you read these words, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, you realize he's doing it again. He, this is exactly what he is doing. Well, you say, well, What's the real point here? Well, the point is that God uses his prophecies and principles that we'll see in just a moment from Psalm 118. He's using the scripture. He's using these prophecies, and he's doing it in order to persuade every single one of us that he is, in fact, telling us the verifiable truth, truth that you can trust in, truth where, look, he said what he meant, and oh, look, he meant what he said. That is the God whom we serve. Just as surely as he gives us all these geographical references of places that we can go to today and we can see them, and some of us have seen them with our very eyes and realize, oh, I mean, this is, this is the very place. 
In the very same way, what he's doing is he's giving you, shall we say, handles for your faith where you can reach out and you can grasp them and you can take hold of them and know he's telling you the truth. Now, what was the specific prophecy? The specific prophecy is found over in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, and he quotes it here in Matthew 21 when he says, Tell you the daughter of Zion, over in Zechariah says the daughter of Jerusalem, Zion. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king comes unto you meek and sitting upon a donkey and a colt, the foal of a donkey. And what did the disciples do? The disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. By the way, it may seem troubling to you. There are going to be times when the Lord wants you to do something and you think, Lord, I can't do that. I mean, I, 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 if I went and did something like that, I would, I would, I would, I'd just be rude and presumptuous. Nevertheless, it's exactly what the Lord told them to do, and they did it. And what was the result? The great high glory of God. God was exalted because they did something that in ordinary places would not seem to be the most uh, uh, courteous thing to do. So what did they do here? He said, tell you the daughter of Zion, behold, your king comes unto you meek and sitting upon a donkey and a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let's pull back just for a moment to ask this question. By the time we get down to verse 10, Jerusalem is moved in a cataclysmic fashion. I mean, everybody's hearing all this and going on. And yet, what are they asking? They're asking, who is this? Dear friends, if it's possible for them, having been conversant with the ministry of Jesus Christ over three and a half years, not only what he did in Jerusalem, but most especially what he did to the north in Galilee and the reports that were all over about his miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and all the people he's healing, then what has happened that these people are even, even having to ask the question, who is this? Now, before you and I rise up to condemn those people, we ought to take a really close look at ourselves. Here you and I have the entire Bible. Here you and I have the very scriptures. But where is it that we have missed the point just as they missed the point? You say, how do you know they missed the point? We'll come to that in verse 10, but the best they could do was identify him as Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth uh, from Galilee. That's, that's as close as they could get to the situation. So think about what the Lord is doing here. Now, this is pretty subtle, but it's pretty amazing. <clears throat> what happened back in Matthew chapter 20 is while they were ascending up to Jerusalem from Jericho, I showed you the picture of that just a few moments ago. There were some blind men who when they realized it was Jesus going by, said, Son of David, he, heal us, Son of David. Son of David was a messianic term. However, they couldn't go into Jerusalem and say, here is the Messiah. And why couldn't they do that? Why, why couldn't they go in and say, here is the Messiah? Here's why. Because up until the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for our sins and is rising again from the dead, people really didn't have a very good grasp on who the Messiah was. 
Think about how many times Jesus said, don't tell anybody what I have done here. Why? Because his time was not yet fulfilled. It wasn't the time. And so there was confusion. Even when he told his own disciples at Caesarea Philippi who he was and, and what was going to happen to him, that he's going to be tortured by the chief priests and elders and scribes and be put to death and rise again, even Peter pulls him aside and says, Lord, no, Lord, wait, 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 wait. Lord, that's just not true. Lord, you've got this all wrong. And what does it say in Matthew chapter 16 that the Lord says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, which is a way of saying adversary. In other words, you and I could be in danger of making the very same mistakes that the disciples made in Matthew chapter 16, that these people were making here. And it really is important that we understand this. If he had gone into Jerusalem and they had pronounced Messiah, everybody would have said, oh, our political and military leader has come and now it is time to rise up against the Romans. There would have been an immediate military battle. Right there on uh, Jerusalem, very close to the Temple Mount, there was a fortress called Fortress Antonio. I'll show you pictures from it uh, tonight. Fortress Antonio was specifically designed to be in one of the biggest hot spots in the entire world, and that was on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. If he had been proclaimed as Messiah, the Romans would have heard it. There would have been immediate slaughter. They would have gone out and just killed everybody in sight who was saying that there was some king other than Caesar. So it was kind of subtle. They said, son of David. That was a messianic understanding. And the people who knew their Bibles, who knew the prophecies of Zechariah chapter 9, they knew what it meant when Jesus Christ rode that donkey down into Jerusalem. You can see it today if you go, and this is again a picture of uh, the Mount of Olives. You're actually looking at the place there where the ascent could have been made. There's actually more than one way, but you can look out over today and say, this is, this is the very place where this would have taken place, that Jesus would have ridden the donkey down. And the people, the multitudes, what did they say in verse 9? They said, Hosanna. The word Hosanna is, you, you could translate that as save now. Hosanna to the son of David. Romans didn't pick up on that. They knew it was, the, the Jewish people knew it was a messianic term, but they didn't pick up on it. But the blind men at Matthew chapter 20, they were the ones that introduced it to the crowd that was going up. They could see what the disciples themselves could not see. They said, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You see what they're doing here is they're proclaiming the Lord, but specifically what are they doing? They are using God's prophecies and principles from Scripture to not only identify, but also to exalt the Lord. You know, you and I could do the very same thing. You and I could go and study the prophecies of Scripture, and we could become very familiar with the principles of Scripture in order to constantly introduce those around us to understand who is Jesus. I mean, what, who is he really when you get right down to it? And by doing that, you and I could be used in exactly the same way. We went to a place called the Southern Steps. So if you kind of think about it this way for a moment, here is the Eastern Gate. I said a moment ago is facing to the east. You know that this way is south. 
going all the way down here on the southern part of the Temple Mount, there are what are called the southern steps. Uh, the Ophel, O-P-H-E-L, is one of the terms that it's used down there. We are sure there is absolute certainty that Jesus Christ would have ascended those steps. He would have sat with his disciples on the steps because those were the steps up onto the Temple Mount. By the way, interesting little architectural feature for those of you who enjoy this kind of thing. Those steps were uneven. Some were long, some were short, long, short, and and you'd say, well, why in the world were they doing that? You know how you and I can get in the rhythm of going up and down steps and we're just, you know, we've got it in our mind and we know how far it is. The architects specifically did not want that to happen. They wanted those people to very carefully think about what they were doing and how they were ascending. There was a large crowd on the southern steps when we were there that day, so we just got pictures. It was basically of, of people sitting on there. But you get a little idea. This is what it would have looked like back in the day. And this is a picture of a sign I took. That's what it would look like. And the lower part would have been the steps. And then uh, those were the steps as they went up. That's, that's likely the place that Jesus Christ would have ascended. Here's what we know from the time. We know that from that eastern gate, going across the Valley of Kidron, going on the Mount of Olives, there used to be a bridge. But that bridge was for very specific ceremonial purposes. That was not the ordinary pedestrian bridge that people used. That would have been for the high and lofty ascent of, say, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, other things like that. Our guide pointed this out to us on this trip, that what Jesus Christ would have done coming down off of the Mount of Olives he would have come down off the Mount of Olives and then gone around to the southern side there and gone up on those steps, as uh, I was pointing out. And here's one of the things that means. It means that it was the common people who really got this. This is especially troubling and especially puzzling by the time you get to the end of this passage, that your clergy, your religious leaders, the ones who should have known the Bible the best, from Zechariah chapter 9 and knew immediately this is being fulfilled in front of our eyes. They didn't get it. In fact, they were really, really displeased and they were upset when people were saying this is the son of David. They, they knew what that meant. It's the common people. If there's one thing that comes out of this passage, it is that the Lord uses the, the simple things. He, he uses the foolish things to confound the wise. He, he uses the, the feeble things to confound the mighty. That people who are humble, just like our, our memory verse from a few moments ago in Isaiah 57, the Lord draws near to those who are of a humble and contrite heart. Those are the people who would have seen it. When they said, Hosanna in the highest, and said, Hosanna to the Son of David, they're actually quoting from Psalm 118. Those are the very words of Psalm 118. Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And just one little note about that. Everybody there knew that those words of Psalm 118 were actually designed to exalt God himself. And here Jesus accepts the praise. He accepts the praise of these who are exalting God. He accepts them for himself. That is a fascinating introduction to who God actually is and to the Lord Jesus Christ. So 
What's the real point of what we're driving at here? Well, you can see it in this passage that you and I should not miss the point that several people missed here along the way. One of the reasons this is written for us is so that we don't miss the point. Don't miss the point when God uses his servants and his prophecies and his principles to identify and exalt the Lord Jesus. Okay, let's talk for a few moments about how they did this. Well, first of all, in verse 10, when he was come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? Had they missed the point? They, They had missed the point, by the way. God is very gracious in that he commands his disciples, apostles, to write gospels such as the gospel of Matthew that we're in right now so that even if they missed the point before, they don't continue to miss the point. And this has been a testimony through all the generations. It's just a reminder for every one of us that we don't want to miss the point. That's the danger of what we're looking at. Missing the point would be like those who ask, who is this? That that would be a very great danger because the best they could do is say, well, this is uh, Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Wait, you had even children in this passage. You, You had blind men in this passage. You had common people in this passage saying, son of David, a term for the Messiah. This, this is the son of David. This is the son of God. He, he's receiving worship. And the best they could come up with is uh, he's some sort of a religious figure. He's sort of a, a prophet of some kind out of, out of Nazareth. You know, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He, he's sort of a prophet there from Galilee. So that's about as far as they could they go that. Okay. They missed the point. And if you and I are not really careful, we're going to miss the point if we don't let the Lord use us and use our possessions to exalt him in the very same way as God himself, using what we have, whether, I don't know, I don't think anybody here owns a donkey, anybody here own a donkey, uh, our other possessions, using them for the Lord's glory, we would be missing the point if we didn't let the Lord use our possessions. It says, Jesus, in order that they really didn't miss it, Jesus went into the temple of God. Notice that there, as you read on, uh, beginning with uh, verses 11 through 14, Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple. He overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Well, Lord, what did all that mean? Here's what he said it meant. It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple that he healed them. Why'd they have to have money changers there on the temple mount? Well, the reason would be very simple. Second commandment, that you would not make any graven images. The Roman coins and the coins of the other kingdoms and cities, they would have been full of graven images. So that was a real no-no on the Temple Mount. You can't do that. You, you need to exchange that money for uh, shekels, basically. And yet somebody saw a profit motive. Somebody said, hey, here's a way to make money. And so at, a, at an exorbitant exchange rate, they were exchanging that money. And by the way, they said, oh, look, people need sacrifices. I mean, they're commanded by the Bible to have sacrifices when they come up here on the Temple Mount. So I'll tell you what let's do. Let's sell them sacrifices. Now, by the way, 
Is there any problem with selling sacrifices? Look, if you had a spotless lamb, let's say you started out the Sea of Galilee and you had a spotless little lamb and you take him these more than 70 miles all the way down to Jerusalem, don't you think he's going to get scratched up somewhere along the way? And all, and all of a sudden, here's this lamb that you had that was like the perfect lamb and by the time you get him there, he's scratched up and you can't use him. So what they would do is they would sell a lamb there, they would bring the money, they would buy a lamb here. Many people, we'll talk about this tonight, many people teach that the sheep that were outside of Bethlehem when the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night, those were actually sacrificial lambs kept close by within three to five miles for the people. And yet again, here's what they did. They moved the selling of the sacrifices up onto the Temple Mount. What's the point? They, they missed the point that people were there to worship the Lord. They looked at it as a business and they wanted to throw themselves into it. We would miss the point if we ignored God's prophecies and principles about his son that are so very plain in this passage. What do we know? We know that God gave his only son to die for our sins, that he was crucified, that he was, that he was buried. He rose again the third day in order to free us from our sins, to save us. That, that's the real point behind the question, who is this? That's the real point that he's trying to make in this passage, and he is making for us, if we would receive it. Jesus Christ is here emphasizing his authority over the temple when he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Let's park for a moment and ask this question. Where's the temple of God today? Well, if you went to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you would find out that every single person in this room who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God is said to be the temple of God. Okay, so here's the question. Are you and I a house of prayer or a den of thieves? Which one? Are we a house of prayer or a den of thieves? But wait, there's more. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3, you find out the entire congregation is referred to as a temple. Every once in a while, somebody will say, oh, I saw a sign that said Baptist temple. There is no Baptist temple. In fact, there is a Baptist temple. That is... Any Baptist congregation is, and any, any Christian congregation, is in fact a temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, how are we at Calvary? Are we a house of prayer or are we a den of thieves? Let's face the fact that the most poorly attended meeting we have is our prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. Are we a house of prayer or a den of thieves? Jesus Christ is speaking to us across all these generations and showing us what is really true about ourselves. We would miss the point then by being a den of thieves and not a house of prayer. And we would miss the point if we refuse to worship Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's exactly what those religious leaders did. I mean, they said nothing doing. And they were upset with him. Here's the children, and the children are echoing, Son of David, Hosanna to God in the highest. And they're, and, and they're frustrated with Jesus and said, don't you hear what they're saying? He said, yes, and have you not read Psalm chapter 8 and verse 2, that out of the mouth of babes and sucklings he perfects praise? May God grant that every one of us who have any kind of maturity in the Christian life, any kind of maturity in adulthood, that we could see what those little children saw on that day. Remember Jesus said, 
unless you come to me as a little child, you will not see the kingdom of God. That you and I would come in humility, that we would come to the place where we say, all right, Lord, I really want to see you. And then here's what we would find out. We would find out that in this passage, God uses his servants and his prophecies and his principles in order to introduce us to Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. If you and I embrace that by faith, we will rightly answer, we know who this is. Who is this? This is Jesus, the Son of God. Shall we bow our heads together? Lord, how I praise you and thank you that on this Palm Sunday, you have given us much to think about in this triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. You've helped us to see how others have missed the point. Lord, I'm asking for every one of us that we would not miss the point. For every single person under the sound of my voice, anybody who watches this or listens to this in the future, that you would help every one of us to truly embrace the Son of God, Jesus Christ, by faith. And in knowing him, know that the God of peace will fill us with all joy and peace in believing that we may abound in hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.